Software Engineering Radio Episode 52 DSLs in Ruby. Okay, welcome Obi to this episode of Software Engineering Radio. Um, we're going to talk about uh, Agile DSL development in Ruby. So once again, this DSL uh, stuff, but now implemented in a host language. It keeps coming up, it doesn't. The, yeah. The DSL topic is definitely hot. Yeah, definitely. And we've talked about model-driven development and these more static approaches. So uh, looking at the dynamic approaches in Ruby is, is probably the next next important step. So um, let's get started with uh, maybe talking about what, what a DSL actually is. We talked about that before, but just trying to formulate it in your words. Well, the, the way I tend to introduce DSLs to people that haven't heard about the concept before is to relate it to jargon, mm -hmm. which is a concept that most people are familiar with. Yeah. And one of the dictionary definitions of jargon is the language, especially the vocabulary peculiar to a particular trade profession or group. Yep. And that's a very useful way of introducing the concept of a DSL to an audience or whoever you may be discussing it with because everyone is familiar with domain-specific language examples in their day-to-day -day life even if they're not familiar with them mm -hmm. uh, or, or they don't recognize them as such. Yep. And a, a DSL is simply a way of using some programming language technology to capture that jargon or a subset of uh, jargon for for a particular task in an executable form. Yeah. So the the the, the executable form is important. So it has it has to be formal. It, it there has to be some degree of formality. There has to be some way to to execute it. Otherwise, it's just some sort of spec or something, right? Yeah. So that's also the difference between specs and DSLs. Correct. DSLs are executable. Correct. So, and do you want to briefly elaborate on the difference between external and internal DSLs and why you probably think internal DSLs are more useful? Uh, sure. Uh, internal versus external is something that was introduced by Martin Fowler. In the relatively recent past, perhaps last year, mm -hmm. uh, he wrote an article called Language Workbenches. Yeah, which we'll put into the show notes. Yeah, it was about language-oriented uh, design, which has to do in part with DSLs. The external versus internal distinction was one that perhaps had not been made the same way before. I know it had been described uh, in different ways. Internal is a way of describing a domain-specific language which is implemented within the framework of a general-purpose programming language, okay. such as Ruby, for instance. Or the I think the, the grandfather of all these techniques is perhaps Lisp. Yeah, <laughs> because pro programming in Lisp uh, pretty much is a continuous exercise of building up um, narrower and narrower uh, domain-specific languages. So, and I guess one of the key capabilities of a language in order to make it useful for implementing internal DSLs is that the syntax is flexible or tweakable or something, and, and Ruby has a very flexible syntax. It has a very flexible syntax. Um, most things in Ruby can be done at least two ways. Yep. For instance, blocks yep. can be defined uh, in a typical multi-line format with do and finishing with end. Yep. Or you can use curly braces. Yep. 
the fact that you can do it both ways actually gives you some flexibility as a language designer, as a domain-specific language designer. Yeah. So. So, and some people say that the reason why why it was easy in Lisp to design DSLs is because Lisp doesn't have a syntax at all, because That's you correct. basically write the trees directly. Yeah, <laughs> That's exactly it. So, let's look at uh, DSL examples. There is uh, one that I really like. It's about ordering coffee, right? Yeah, it's ordering coffee. So, for our American listeners and wherever the Starbucks uh, is the predominant way to get your caffeine fix, <laughs> you know that if you walk into a Starbucks and you say venti half calf non fat no foam no whip latte, they will know exactly what you mean, <laughs> even though, you know, outside of that context, it makes absolutely no sense at all. So, uh, that was an example I gave in the talk as. Uh, my my lead into a toy example that we yeah. could implement as a DSL. Yeah. So another one might be uh, Route 66 swinging easy on the chorus, extra solo at the coda, and bump at the end. And by the way, these are a couple examples uh, that my colleague Neil Ford, who also talks about DSLs, mm -hmm. uh, used in one his OSCON presentation mm -hmm. about DSLs. And I thought they were kind of cool mm -hmm. as real life. Yeah, right, real life examples. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they also illustrate that if you don't know the context of the DSL. The, the the program probably doesn't make much sense because I read these slides and I didn't recognize it. Now I'm not American, right. but still I didn't know you're talking about coffee, so maybe you know it was hard to recognize it. Yeah, again the the, the fact that it's a narrow domain, but the person that would yeah. if the, if this was some sort of uh, software that we need to implement, the person validating it, the person helping to define the spec, yeah, the the presupposition it. is that yes they would know. Yeah, so. Um, One, there, there is a, a, a frequently recurring discussion about what's the difference between a framework and APIs and uh, fluent APIs and a DSL. So how would a traditional API-based uh, implementation of such uh, an API basically to order coffee look like? Um, it's obviously a bit hard to describe APIs and program source code in an audible form only, but we'll try. So. Well, it's, it's just a couple of lines. So I, I gave an example of what I described as not a particularly good API-driven yeah. uh, approach to this, but it was basically in Ruby code, latte.new, and then it takes three parameters, so it's just th which are three constants, venti, yeah. half-calf, non-fat. Yeah. That gets you uh, an order yep. object uh, instance. And then from that order, you can invoke prepare, And in this case, in the case of the example in the talk, I passed the false parameter. And the part of the point is that even though this is completely normal code, within the context of my talk, part of the point is you don't know exactly what that false is. Yeah, because it doesn't say such and such equals false. It's just correct. The there's no parameter. keyword parameter. Right. It's just yes. that it's, it's yeah. actually passing a, a false. Yeah. So if we if we're looking at this as someone who's not familiar with the implementation of this code. We actually have to go and look at the API in order to understand it. Yep. So in the API, you would look at, for instance, the definition of the prepare method and see that, oh, it takes two parameters, add foam and add whip. And because it's a latte, add foam is true and add whip is false. Yep. Uh, okay. I mean, that's normal code. Yep. That, that, that's very typical of, of what you find all over the place. Yeah. And actually, for maybe for you folks, Java programmers, it basically looks the same because using constants and calling yep. the constructor, it's basically the same thing. So now let's look at how it could also look like if we do it with a language that does have um, a flexible syntax. You couldn't do that in Java, right? I don't think you could do this in Java. I mean, you, you can 
let's go back to that in a second. Yeah. Okay. So uh, in the in the DSL ish uh, example in Ruby, the line would literally read latte, venti, comma half calf, comma non fat, comma no foam, comma no whip. Yeah. So it is, it's almost exactly word for word right. the and, description. And there is no function call parentheses, and there is no new call. So it doesn't look like, as you said, it doesn't look like a program. It, it doesn't necessarily look like a program. You can, because I've included, uh, for instance, uh, underscores, mm. which didn't need to be there, but the, just you know was the way that uh, that that came out. Then yeah. you can kind of tell that it's sort of vaguely programming like yeah <laughs> the fact that uh in the example for instance i i assigned it to an order variable yeah, okay. things like that but even to a non-programming uh person yes who was on my team as a perhaps perhaps a domain expert or business analyst yeah if i sat him down next to me which yeah. is one of the principles of agile is to include people in the process right yes yeah. and and i said does this look right he would read it and he would say, yeah, that looks right. Yeah. Even the person who is completely intimidated by programming in general, yeah. which we've met, we meet those on the job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We can bring them in and perhaps with some yeah. coaxing, we say, can you please look at this? Yeah. And this is a really interesting point you make because I've, I've mentioned that before. I don't think it is very realistic to have the real domain experts actually write the code. Correct. But if you do pairing, if you do pair programming with a domain expert and you have a notation that doesn't, put him off as soon as he sees it that's a big advantage already it's a huge advantage yeah so you don't have to talk about specs so so how do you go go forward if you design a ruby dsl is there like a, a, like a process or best practice of steps that you'll do yeah i I've, this is from our practice yeah so we've done this a couple of times on yeah. real projects yeah. uh in thoughtworks yeah. the advice that i gave that I give actually uh, is don't try to do your abstract meta model first. Yep. Uh, that that would be the the process of going through analysis up front and yep. trying to create a class model yep. and the object model that you're going to base your DSL on. Yeah. So I say don't do that first. Yeah. I say together with the domain expert or your an analyst, capture your DSL concepts and value valid Ruby syntax. So if you're a Ruby beginner, you may have a bit of difficulty with this. Yes, indeed. And if you're not a particular good, particularly good writer, for instance, so yeah. if you don't express yourself very well in, in writing, yeah. you may have a little bit of problem with this. Yeah. Correct? There's some, there's some underlying prerequisites that, that are necessary to be able to use this technique. However, if you, if you can write a little bit, if you understand the dynamics of language design a little bit, and you know valid Ruby syntax, then you're ready to go. You can basically sit down and have a conversation, a dialogue with the user to, you know, or, or whoever's driving your yep. your domain, yep. and, and just say, well, what what are the requirements that we're going to cover? So, for instance, if we were trying to implement some business rules for our application as a DSL, let's describe some of these business rules, and we yep. may just start by capturing the vocabulary. Yeah, yeah. That that would be the the process of starting to de develop yeah. an ontology. Yeah. And basically, yeah. 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 what is what is this jargon? What are the what's the lexicon of this yeah. jargon? Yeah. We we put those down, and it's very very easy. Uh, as actually, I, I showed I think in some of the you know, for instance, with the latte example, it's very very easy to put down code 
without worrying about the implementation, and you can even check the Ruby syntax to make sure it's okay. Yep. And yep. and you can just iterate over that. So just oh, like example or even test driven, right? So you you start with the, the test case first, and then you implement the language. We'll talk about that later until it works. Yeah. Sometimes it's more than one expert you want to run it by. Yeah. Oftentimes it is a it is an exercise of analysis because you have to find mm. if the, if you're doing it in DSL rather than hard coding things just in a traditional sense. There's got to be some driver for that. So what we found is that it's it's quite often advantageous to use DSLs in order to capture the business rules. Yep. which are mostly common, but they vary. Yep. So in the case of the bank that we worked with, we were capturing business rules related to how they compensate their partners. Yep. And the thing is that they mostly compensated their partners in very similar ways, but, but every single partner had a contract which was negotiated independently yep. and had little quirks and little differences that made it unique from the others. So in this case, you describe the contracts with these rules formally as a DSL and not as just a Word document. Correct. They they had many Excel documents and <laughs> Word documents, and actually the contract itself, yeah. which they were using to do their analysis and basically plug in these business rules, I, I say with air quotes, yeah. because it wasn't truly a rules-based system. It was just a custom PL SQL implementation yep. of a of a rules based system, yep. and part of the problem is that the the errors can cost a lot of money because you have no good way other than by running the the beast yep. <laughs> and checking the results of seeing is this correct according to the contract. Yeah, you don't have so on the left side you may have your contract right in the language the spec if you will. Yep. On the right side, you don't have anything. You have a bunch of PLSQL, which doesn't make any sense to anyone yeah. except who wrote it. Yeah. So in this case, we went through and created a DSL, which matched the contract language as closely as we yeah. you know, we thought we could do it. Yeah. So and now on the left side, you have your contract. On the right side, you have your DSL script. Yeah, and now you have something to relate to. Correct. Yeah. And we'll put probably some of these slides into the show notes so yeah, people absolutely. can see I that. Yeah, absolutely. I think we should. Um, yeah. One thing that I that is really cool, <laughs> I'm looking at this at this moment, um, that you can actually treat numbers as objects and then write five dot dollars in order to express that it's not just five; it's actually five dollars. So this is this is actually cool. <laughs> so we'll put more of these in the in the show notes. So. I get the impression that writing DSLs in Ruby is quite a natural way of working with Ruby. In fact, many people say, and I'd agree there, of course, that Ruby on Rails, the raison d'être, the Ruby these mm, days maybe, yeah. is actually a DSL for web development, right? It's a collection of DSLs oh, right. yes. around, yeah, around the whole process of developing web apps. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's important to, it's important to note that It, calling Rails itself a, a big DSL is only true in the most abstract sense. Yeah, right? it addresses several domains like persistence, yeah, presentation, correct. and transactions. So it's it's a collection of the, DSLs. The, the point is that yeah, for it's I think it's very important for people to realize that if your DSL is too encompassing, if it if it spans yeah. too many areas, even if it's too big within a certain domain, yes, it's going to suffer. It's going to suffer. Because 
the the language that you use even within a particular domain it, the semantics of that language is very dependent on context yeah although the the, the other view would be that it, it's like a phil philosophical discussion whether you say there is one big dsl that has several partitions for different for different aspects of the problem or yeah. whether you say you have several dsls that you combine together in order to solve a bigger problem that's like the usual discussion right yeah the point is that the different aspects of a complex systems require different syntax different meta models different formalisms that's correct and and i would say rails proves that true yeah the one of the key di differentiators being that it's all ruby yeah so whereas in other systems, in other ways of putting together a web app, for instance, even if you had fluent interfaces, there may be a combination of different technologies. Mm, true, yes. Uh, yeah. Many, many different flavors of XML, so on and so forth. It's probably two reasons why this works in, in Ruby. One is the syntactic sugar, so the flexible syntax, and the other thing is Ruby's metaprogramming facilities. Yep. So I think we should talk about these now to get the feeling for our listeners how to actually implement the DSL because writing down stuff is not all. <laughs> so what are some of the syntactic sugar uh, elements that make uh, DSL development in Ruby easy? Uh, well, one of the first things is the, the fact that the parentheses are optional. Mm. Very, very important. Yeah. Because the fact that I can leave off parentheses when I call a method, mm -hmm. It, it it lets the language flow much more naturally. It lets it be less intimidating to a non-programmer, yeah. <laughs> so on and so forth. Yeah. Less line noise. Mm. Uh, and if if you strive for simplicity in your DSL design, then you'll want to live, leave off any unnecessary parentheses just to, to let it read closer to natural language, correct? Yeah. Another thing, too, that, that's very important and useful is the fact that in, in Ruby we use symbols, which are basically intern strings, as names, as identifiers. And symbols are denoted with a colon. A colon, yeah. So basically any string that starts with a colon, that's a symbol. Yeah. Uh, and, and just to, to, to add to that, um, since Ruby is a dynamic language and you don't have compiled or static typing in, for example, in your editor, there is no real difference between writing a keyword, a method call, and a symbol, because it's all kind of the same thing. It's only interpreted at runtime. Right. That's why you can mix symbols, method calls, and things kind of without noticing it. Yeah, as long as it's valid syntax. Of course, yes. You know, and and you get used. To, it, it, there may be some discomfort, <laughs> I would say, coming over from a from a Java background, mm -hmm. uh, with with things being um, like that. You know, in the, in the way that you describe the fact that you mix all these things together in many different ways. Yeah, this the syntax is a bit looser. Yeah, um, but it it yields a lot of benefits for DSL. You know, yeah. what we were talking about the, as far as syntax sugar, the blocks. Yeah, for instance. So what is a block? Very, very valuable. A block is essentially a. Uh, there's different ways to describe it, but it as uh, a closure. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's a function. Anonymous. Uh, it's an anonymous function that you can pass around. You can assign it to a variable. Yeah. And many methods in Ruby or methods that you define yourself can take a block. Yeah. So uh, in I, fact, they, the block can be optional. Yep. Which is useful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then the block lets you delay execution. Mm -hmm. So you can capture the context, put it somewhere, hand it around, Correct. and execute it later. Yes, absolutely. So for for some of the Java programmers who unfortunately don't have this feature in their language, it's more it's maybe like a command pattern with a lot of syntactic sugar. Yeah, that's maybe yeah, the other explanation. Correct. Because a lot of times you you 
you're just going to need that particular command implementation just once. Yep. So you don't right. want to extract it to somewhere <laughs> yes. else. You want it in line so yeah, that yeah. it actually has yeah. the context yeah. for you to understand it. Without having to define an anonymous inner class with well, yeah, an execute that, that just becomes and, noise. Yeah, you can't do this. Yeah. 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 So the next thing that I saw in, in Ruby is like literal hashes and literal arrays where you again leave away the parents and yeah. therefore... Uh, the, the fact that... Well, literal arrays are, are present... In Java, yeah, true. Uh, literal hashes are not. Yeah, and and actually, this is this is one of my favorite features of, of Absolutely, Ruby. Absolutely, yeah. The fact that you can very very elegantly, I think, pass around just these literal hash. Yeah. You know, using a notation where you use a little arrow symbol, so yeah. it's the you know yeah. equals uh, greater than. Yeah. And it's just so beautiful, you know, yeah. for 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 cases where you need to pass things that look like keyword arguments, right? So, exactly. Yeah. You know, so for instance, going back to my, um, we were we were discussing the fact that Ruby programming in general tends towards DSL ish yep. kind of things, yep. right? If I went back to my original coffee example and I wanted to improve that by making it a little bit more DSL ish, yeah, I may change the method signature of uh this false thing right yeah the false thing so that when yeah. i call prepare yeah. instead of having just two normal arguments like false and true right i would pass a hash yeah and the hash would use symbols as keys yeah to say add whip and yeah. uh add foam yeah and i so i would actually say add whip arrow true yeah yeah so the point is that that in that case the the person that came along and had to maintain that code or had to verify yeah. that that code is correct would actually read it and have the context there and it, yeah. it would be more expressive. Yeah. And that that's really the key that and, we're and, striving for. And again for the static language person this sounds strange because oh you lose type safety and you have this hash as a parameter but but in the end in Ruby it doesn't matter since everything is dynamic it doesn't matter whether you pass uh Arguments that are not checked at run at, at compile time or in the editor, or whether you pass a hash, because both are not checked, so both are kind of the same level of guarantee statically, which is basically none. Yeah, if you need to enforce some contract on those parameters, then you do so, and we quite often do. So, so you, you you basically check like if there yeah. is this in the hash and if it isn't. In, in fact, the way that many Rails methods are are implemented is that they they take vary, varying different types. Yeah. You know, for instance, the find method. This, this is one of the most basic things you can do with Rails is to use the Active Record framework to find the record. Mm -hmm. The find method on Active Record uh, takes an ID. So basically, if it if it receives a numeric as the first parameter. Yeah. It will look up the, that row by ID. Yeah. If it receives the keyword uh, expressed with a symbol first, it will return the first row. Mm, mm. You, you get my point. The, yeah. the, you can it can be polymorphic in terms of the parameters. It's, it's yeah. very, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's very different than than what uh, we're used to in, in yeah. Java and, yeah. and so on. Yeah. There's examples that that I give. For instance, that so many things in Rails uh, are just very good examples of DSL-ish type code, yeah. you know, very expressive code. Yeah. When I emphasize that, the, the the key point here is not to create a DSL for the sake of creating a DSL. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 
right? It's it's a whole philosophy, it's a whole mentality yeah. about how you you write your code in expressive yeah. fashion. So the example we just have in front of us is like um, you can take a class, you can add a keyword like acts as state machine, yeah. and then you can define states. And um, the point is that uh, making a class act as a state machine actually has to change the behavior of the class. That's there has correct. to be something like trigger, and then something has to move. So we, as as a consequence of writing state and then colon stalled, for example, where colon stalled is a symbol, you have to actually modify the class as oh, yeah. a consequence, which brings us to metaprogramming and self-modification, yep. right? So um, let's let's look uh, talk about some of these features then, I guess. There's a, there's a really good quote by James Bach, who is a well-known figure in the Rails community. He works for 37signals, uh, has contributed a lot to Rails, mm -hmm. including Capistrano, which is our deployment framework. Mm -hmm. So he said, the trick to writing DSLs in Ruby is really knowing what you can and can't do with Ruby's metaprogramming features. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, like you were saying, the but part of what makes this possible to work in this way and to make it so expressive is the fact that, for instance, in that example, when I say access state machine and then give it uh, its initial state, yep. there's a lot going on under the scenes. There's a, it, It's not subtle at all there's methods being created there's yeah. state being changed yeah. you know there's there's database columns that will be accessed now yeah. to, you know to so and 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 this is one of the really cool things that i was really glad to see in ruby when i took a look at it first um so you have to picture this you define a class such and such like for example class story subclasses extends goal and then you can literally write acts as state machine and this what looks like just a keyword is actually a method call that is evaluated upon class definition and then as a consequence changes the class, right? Yeah, as the, as this class is, is getting initialized, you can execute methods yeah. on it that have been mixed in or that come from a, from a superclass. Yeah. And those methods can contribute to the you know, construction of that class and yeah. to its behavior yeah. by adding methods and behavior yeah. to it. In the end, it's self-modifying code, right? Yeah. Which has it's, been it, criticized uh, historically uh, at some point sometimes. Well, but I mean, they're, they're also referred to as higher order functions because they're functions that, you know, yeah. create other functions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's look at uh, the set of features that are uh, typically used for building DSLs, metaprogramming features. There's definitely different ways of... Yeah. Uh, creating DSLs, and, and the, the particular way that the, these were uh, identified uh, was, I think, in a blog posting by uh, James Buck. Mm -hmm. So he, he went through and said, okay, well, there's, there's, I see four different ways, and uh, I happen to agree with him. So the first one is instantiation. It's, it's simply a, a DSL that is composed of methods on an object. Yep. And Builder is an example of this. Uh, builder by Jim Wyrick, who's a legend in the Ruby community, yeah. is a very, very good little API for building XML. Mm -hmm. And the way that works is that you create an XML markup object instance, uh, which is part of the builder library. Yep. Now you have this reference, and you capture that in a, in a variable, yep. uh, which we normally call XML <laughs> for obvious reasons. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, And then th this builder object has a couple of special methods, for instance, like instruct bang. Yeah. Uh, it, the bang denotes that it's a special method. There's yeah. something going on there, and yeah. that basically generates an instruct tag uh, near the top. But then everything else, it doesn't really have any other methods other than a method missing yeah. callback. 
method missing for those not familiar with the concept is all objects in, in Ruby end up with a with a method missing. Yeah. You know, method by default, default. method inherited, right? Yeah. yeah, and what that does is it throws an exception, yeah, which says I don't have this method. So, so what happens is in your client code, you you call a method that doesn't exist on the class yes. or on the object, and then on this purpose, call, on yeah. purpose, yeah, <laughs> and then the the callback is is yeah. invoked, and then you can react. Yeah. So normally, objects uh, definition of method missing is to throw an exception. You override yeah. it, right? Uh, in, in your when you override it, you make it, for instance, in this case with Builder, to say, okay, I'll take whatever method you called and use that as the name of the tag yeah. that I want to create. Yeah, and probably then return the Builder object again so yes, you can do correct. this recursively uh, or repeatedly. It also leverages the fact that Ruby blocks... Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. are so so powerful. You can pass your your content, your execution context around. Yeah. yeah. So the fact that I nest using a block structure again further calls to XML creates yeah. nested structures in my yeah. in my yeah. XML. And and again to the Java programmer, uh, it's it looks strange because um, you call a method that's not there, and the Java compiler would simply say, "Hey, compile time error doesn't work." Yeah. But here, because everything is executed or evaluated at runtime, it's just something you can react to at runtime. Yeah, it it's very very different than yeah. than a frame based language where the methods have to be known. Yeah, uh, Ruby is is message oriented, just like Smalltalk. So the even though you define methods on a class, whenever you you are invoking a method, you're basically sending a message. Yeah, I never really got the difference between sending a message and invoking a, invoking a method. It's philosophical, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> probably a topic for another time. <laughs> yeah. But the, but the point is that because it's treated in that way, you can have message handling for unknown messages. Right. You know, which which enables this kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so class macros is a is a different way uh, of achieving the the same kind of result, DSL results uh, with yeah. expressive code. This is used very very widely in Rails, yeah. for instance. Yeah, 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 yeah. Belongs to has many. Yeah, it's what we were talking about a few minutes ago, as far as uh, defining methods at the class level, which you then invoke in, for instance, subclasses. Yeah. Like you said, uh, access state machine, for instance, is one that you can mix in. And here, uh, for instance, we see um, an example of a rule set, uh, something I pulled out of one of my existing projects. Yep. Uh, belongs to global criteria, belongs to a partner, has many comments. And th- these things get executed as the class is initialized, and it... it goes through a series of behavior because of that and it changes yeah. the structure of the class. Yeah. To to again picture this, you have a class, it extends from some base class or it mixes in some kind of mixin mm-hmm. and then you can call the methods that this superclass has in it, static methods. Correct. You can call them and as part of the definition of the class you're currently working in, this method is executed and it can do whatever it wants. Do whatever it wants. For example, use things like instance eval or class eval yes. to actually modify the class that's currently created on the fly. Yes. This is actually really pretty cool. Yeah. And it's like uh, a meta object protocol in, in, in CLOS and stuff. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And, then, and later on we'll get into even cooler stuff you can do, like for instance read part of the class definition from a database. Yeah, 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 so yeah. now you're mixing the, you know, your data is code and your your code is data and all sorts of fun stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another way of implementing a DSL in Ruby is to use top-level methods. So this is more appropriate to the 
person that's building some sort of utility or so top level methods you mean are not associated with a class or well there there's, there there is one con- there is a main execution context mm-hmm. at the beginning of yep. execution of yep. a ruby program yep. so if for instance you define methods in that context then they will be available in that top level context yeah the main example of this is rake yeah rake yes. is the build tool ruby's make yeah ruby's make yeah uh, and we use it in the same way that you would use Ant yep. in Java. Or I wonder why people didn't call it Rant. <laughs> there, I've seen I've seen some called Rant actually that try to be more like Ant. Uh, okay. But uh, Jim Wyrick, who I said before, is a, is a legend. Is yep. a very talented guy. Wrote this thing called Rake, and it's mm. it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it it is. An example of a DSL is targeted at the domain Developer. of building. Yeah. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. so uh, it doesn't it, i remember that the first time i heard rake described as a dsl it kind of struck me as odd mm. because i'm used to thinking of dsls as throwing as uh leaning more towards natural language mm. you know expressivity but the the point is that someone who is thinking and working in the domain of building software yeah. yes it is an, it is a natural domain. dsl yeah exactly yeah, that's why i usually distinguish between technical domains and business or functional domains and make or rake or building would be a technical domain correct so in order to use rake basically you just uh include rake's methods you know it basically sets up the context and then you you just suck in your script and load it and then it gets executed yeah and um i showed the uh the audience uh, an example of a custom task from one of my projects it finds a namespace describes uh it gives a description wipe database task action uh Task clear depends on environment, and then yep. takes a block for what to do. And the depends on is written as a um, as a as a hash basically again. Yeah. You write task such and such, and then the arrow, and then another task name. Correct. That's really nice. Yeah. So I, I the, you see that the, there's a little bit of a mental mapping going on there because I, I in fact I didn't even think about it, but when I read task clean, the clean arrow environment, right? I read as clean depends on environment yeah of course. and there, there is a bit of that mapping that actually you can teach your domain experts and your analysts yeah to understand that little little bits of uh ruby syntax for instance like the arrow to mean as or especially know. if those people don't know ruby in the first place so they don't have to replace the meaning they already know for the symbol with something else Correct. it's just the child that this means this now uh Sometimes I say, you know, with with Ruby DSLs, is how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? Mm. Because, for instance, uh, Jay Fields, who's a very good friend of mine at ThoughtWorks, yeah. and yeah. and one of the guys that's been pioneering some of this stuff with me, yeah. we can, for instance, replace that arrow there with as, mm. with the word as. You can do that in Ruby. I mean, there's there's, there's ways basically to use method missing and, and yeah, all this stuff, yeah, and the yeah. parameters are passed to yeah. it. And get the same exact result. Yeah, yeah. But do you need to do that? Mm. Right. So there's tr- you know there's trade offs yeah. in terms of the complexity and the implementation, yeah. and this just applies as a universal rule. Yeah. So yeah. in in going towards natural language style in your DSL, yeah. be careful that you're not you know sacrificing the the elegance of your code by creating this incredibly complex implementation of it just to get 
one little, little step further yeah. in, along the natural language. So, so in other words, you have to balance the, the convenience for the DSL user with the complexity and the effort to implement, implement Correct. DSL. And this, this is probably something that is somewhat unique to this whole issue of creating internal DSLs because you're relying on an existing syntax. So the question is, how much do I want to include? Yeah. How much do I want to you know, uh, break through that abstraction layer by yeah. including yeah. elements of the underlying yeah. uh, programming language? Yeah. Whereas in an external, you would have 100% control, so you're, all, that you're always true. making those decisions. But, but still, you, you, have to, you have to trade off the amount, that the, in general, the, the power of the DSL and you know the the, the amount of uh, exceptions to standard behavior it can handle. You have to balance that with the amount of effort you put into building all the infrastructure. So yeah, on that level, it's the same. I agree. So the next one is um, sandboxing or context, right? Yeah. I, I, so th this is the way that, for the most part, when we're we're talking about using DSLs in a business context. Yeah. It's typically in the sense of let's write a script that describes some business rules or some business logic, which can be directly influenced, if not written and maintained by the business, by the end user yep. or by the domain expert. And then what we do is we take that and we execute it in different contexts. Mm. Uh, it's the same Ruby code. We don't have to transform it in any way, but just depending on what class, you know. Uh, context you you execute it in, yep. it, it does different things. Yeah, yeah. And the the example, um, a good example is Capistrano is implemented in this way, which is this uh, deployment tool. This deployment tool for Rails, uh, which means you don't have to, for instance, like in the builder example, we prepended XML dot to to everything. Yep. But if you do things this way by being fancy with your bindings and and the the block context that things get executed in you can leave that off mm -hmm. so you're for instance the uh one of the example deployment uh tasks that that's included with all the capistrano recipes is the uh is a transactional deployment mm -hmm. so task deploy do transaction do update mm -hmm. code disable web symlink migrate end It's it's a very readable, yeah, yeah. you know, very very little noise there. And the do is actually the keyword that introduces a block. Yeah, the do is a keyword that introduces a block, and the con there's there's different contexts there, and they're all linked together in a way that produces you know some state which will you will then execute it. As I started to mention before, you can keep bits and pieces of DSL scripts in the database, mm -hmm. and this is something that I've found personally extraordinarily easy to abuse and have fun with i would say in rails yeah uh, associating little bits of dsl-ish type script that modifies the behavior of for instance active record objects mm -hmm. and storing that in the database and loading it in at, at runtime and that's of course mainly a way of getting around some of the limitations by the deployment folks who say you can deploy only once a week and you want to do you know faster changes oh you're lucky if they say once a week yeah, most okay. of the times <laughs> it's once a month right yeah or once a quarter so you can tweak stuff in and they think it's data that's that's one of the clever you know yeah. that's one of the loopholes that you can use in certain organizations <laughs> if, if you need to yeah Uh, and it can be quite effective. Yeah. And actually, it it can be safe as well because that little snippet of executable code can 
even though it's in Ruby, you can put constraints around it to make sure that it, you know, it is secure and it's not going to present a problem to mm. you. Yeah. You know, rolling yeah. out what is in essence live production code. Yeah. It just happens to be stored in the database. <laughs> so th- yeah. there's some funny issues around that. Yeah. Yeah. But you you would typically implement that by by using this, this technique of, yeah. of context or sandboxing, as James refers to. Yeah. It. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the funny thing is that in creating those contacts, or like we, I think we mentioned earlier, you would TDD those. Yep. And in TDDing them, you would go through and try to you basically start from the beginning of your script and, and make it, your script work. Yep. TDDing, by the, by the way, stands for uh, using a test-driven process to yes. and develop it. Yeah, test-driven design. Yep. Uh, so we've written... Our DSL script, which is basically the acceptance that represents when, yep. when our script runs the way we intended to, then this feature, that you know, this this task is is done. Yeah, that's our acceptance criteria. It's a high level executable acceptance script in yep. that sense. Yeah, and then in order to implement it, we have to start writing the context, the, the methods that will yep. be invoked. Yeah, so on and so forth. But we don't just write those blind, right? We we begin writing unit tests for yep. the context of course, yeah. in driving the implementation uh, and using unit tests now you create a meta model yep because now you end up with a with a object model that rep- represents what you need to support your dsl script yep. and one of the reasons that i consider this agile is because you don't go above and beyond what you need to support in your script yeah yeah you know you you do only what you need to support the different instances of the script. That's why it's important to, to do a number of different scripts and basically yeah. consider different possibilities. Yeah. But here's where you don't trip yourself up as much in terms of refactoring mm. in future. So considering changes that may happen to that language, if you've spent a considerable amount of time and money, <laughs> in essence, going through a bunch of analysis, yeah. creating a big object model that's yeah. going to consider the possibilities up front, and now you've encoded the assumptions that you made in that meta model into your dsl and it turns out that some of those assumptions were, were wrong yep. as they will be <laughs> you, <laughs> you know yep. then, then that's going to have a bunch of impact on your existing code yep. but if you only do enough to support the existing dsl stuff that you've verified yep. actually does express the intent of, of the domain expert yeah then chances are and actually i can i can say this from experience with, yeah. with our projects yeah. as things come up afterwards they will be extensions yeah. there will be growth yeah. of the language and there won't be changes yeah. yes right yeah that's so, my experience too and that mitigates the uh, you know the impact of having to refactor dsls and evolve the schema yes, right correct. You know, in terms of meta model so yeah so before we wrap up, I think uh, it's it's uh, useful to quickly look at at some of the like supporting features that that you need in order to define DSLs. For example, I could imagine that if you want to define methods dynamically, uh, Ruby has to provide some means of probably evaluating a string and making this actually source code or something like that. Yeah, and li- like I said before, there there is for almost everything in Ruby a couple different ways of of doing yeah. it. So there there are different ways of evaling. At runtime, so yeah. uh, it's almost macro functionality. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Eval, just straight eval. There's performance considerations there, so these are not beginner Ruby topics. Yeah. I would say, yeah, get some, get right. get some, you know, Ruby experience under your belt. Yeah, <clears throat> definitely. 
you know, get it. There, there's material available out there to to see, you know, well, what are the performance implications of using eval? What are the performance implications of using instance eval? Yeah. So what's what's instance eval and class eval and eval? They they have to do with what what the actual execution context you want mm -hmm. it to be in in your Ruby code. So instance eval modifies an object. Class eval modifies a class. Y yes, essentially. Uh, okay. it's a, we could talk another half hour about the yeah. subtleties of, of those. Yeah, but, okay. You probably shouldn't. <laughs> uh, and then you have things that are relatively simple to understand, like define method. Mm. To define a method. and so you, you give, could define a method, pass in a block? or Yes, correct. Mm -hmm. And the block becomes the body of the method. So basically you're... Okay. Mm -hmm. um, alias method to, to do a little bit of uh, AOP style things where you can just uh, have an existing method, for instance, you say, well... Because of this configuration, for instance, let's say a class level, uh, yeah. you know, method call. Yeah. Well, I'm going to alias some existing method to wrap it. So I alias ah. the original method to something old, and then I go ahead and to create a new method that new method do, does something, yep. then calls the alias other method and correct. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's actually funny. Uh, I find it funny because it, when I was I was in Java for a long time, and like for instance, AOP was a big deal, and a lot yeah. of people. You know, still to this day, argue back and forth about whether it's good, whether it's bad. When is it going to come around? When is going to come? Away. But AOP concepts and things like this are already baked into Ruby, and they're like not a big deal. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> you know, and what we do from yeah. day to day. We talked uh, about that yesterday evening, and by the way, again, we're recording this at the Joe Conference in Denmark in Aarhus in yeah. uh, October 2006. We talked about this over the beer yesterday in the bar how revolutionary and important and groundbreaking AOP really is or is it just basically a workaround the, around the, the limitations of Java of, yeah. of Java and similar languages right yeah yeah, yeah. It, I, I think so I, yeah. th I, I think I'm the moderator I'm not you know I'm saying, not saying I think anything. I think AOP <laughs> is important yeah but I think maybe they make too big a deal about it in, in yeah. those communities yeah whereas now that I've been part of the Ruby community for a while, I realized, wow, this is just another tool in the tool set that they've yeah. been using for years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if we, if we want to talk about a little bit about just um, how you can take the, these business natural language. Uh, so I should say what business natural language is first. Mm -hmm. uh, business natural language, Jay Fields came up with a catchy thing. He said they're, they're dr damp, not dry. Yeah. Descriptive and natural phrases. Yeah. Uh, so, the in business and like we talked about variations in different contracts where they're mostly the same but they have slight differences. And naive programmers, or I, well, I shouldn't even say naive, say beginner, typical enterprise type projects. Okay. Uh, you know, you you end up with a lot of copy paste programming, yep. which many of us you know look down our noses at us. <sighs> Yeah, this is horrible. This violates O principles in, yeah. in so many ways. It's not maintainable. Yeah. There's problems with that. But if you take a pragmatic approach and you look at it, you say there's very valid reasons why sometimes enterprise developers go for that, and it's not just laziness. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that it's very easy. For instance, when I'm rolling on a new partner, to say, well, this one is just like partner X. Mm. except with these slight differences. So let me copy the configuration of partner yeah, X over yeah, and yeah, yeah. make the differences. And it, it, it saves me work, yeah. actually. So by creating DSLs to capture business rules in that sense, and if you create a framework around it, an application framework for people to easily be able to clone, yeah. 
and clone is a little bit less of a negative connotation than copy paste, <laughs> you know, in that context. But it's yeah. essentially saying the same thing. Yeah. And then you put some workflow around it, and then you put yeah. some versioning, and you give tool support in the form of syntax checking, for instance, yeah. and then in the, in the form of semantic checking. So I did ask the audience kind of rhetorically, how crazy do you want to get? Uh, because, it, you know, in, in one sense, this go this flouts the conventional wisdom of the vendors and, you know, lots of the way that people typically approach these mm. types of problems. Mm, mm. You know, most conventional wisdom, I would say, was it would look at a problem like the one that we tackled, uh, you know, a few months ago using this approach and say, well, of course, buy an off-the-shelf business rules, you know, or, you, or use rules or something like that. Yep. But that's... You know, there's things that you get from that, but then there's a bunch of trade-offs that you make as well, right? Yeah. And if we are trying to make all of our code and all you know all of our implementation very elegant and very expressive and very verifiable in the ways yep. that we've been discussing for the yep. last hour, yeah. You know, maybe you don't want to go that route. Yeah. Maybe you do do it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where having a you know powerful toolkit like Rails, for instance. In order to do it ourselves, you know, yeah. and do it in forty lines of code, yeah. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but you know, the, yeah. the the point is that it makes so many things so easy yeah. that it actually lets you go off and be more creative in yeah. these directions, yeah. Yeah. you know, and still come in under time under budget. <laughs> which, which comes back to the point that I think languages and language design and being able to extend languages to define relevant abstractions is really something that is maybe more important than using X number of frameworks and technologies mm -hmm. so it's probably underestimated yeah i think there's a lot of room for growth yeah there's a lot of room for for creativity and innovation in, yep. in this field right now yep. okay so i think let's wrap it up yeah thank you marcus thank you for being on the show and uh we'll put a couple of links to some of your blogs and slides and stuff into the show notes yeah thanks again Thanks for listening to Software Engineering Radio. If you want to get more information about Software Engineering Radio or if you want to give us feedback, please go to our website at se-radio.net. You can also contact the team at team at se-radio.net, although we prefer entries in our comments system on the website so other people can see what you think. Software Engineering Radio wants to thank Henning Pauli for the intro and outro music as well as Lipson for providing the bandwidth. This episode of SE Radio, as well as all other episodes, is licensed under Creative Commons license. See the Software Engineering Radio website for details.